The Law Report with Tyrone Key. And a very good evening to you from tonight's Law Report program. And firstly, sincere apologies. The special show was scheduled for broadcast last week, but due to technical problems, we were unable to bring it to you. So here it is now. We get so many emails from you that we've decided to do a show just dealing with those emails that you've sent us regarding labour issues. And of course, I'm joined in studio this evening by labour law attorney Michael Bagram. Michael, good evening. Welcome back to the show. Hi, good evening and thank you. Yes, I've been through some of the emails and the questions. Very interesting, very searching. And I think everyone's going to be really interested to hear what the answers are to some of these questions. It affects all of us. Well, we won't be taking any calls this evening as we'd like to get through all those emails. But before we begin with those emails, some of you might have heard by now that Michael is now in Parliament. And I have had quite a number of emails asking whether this is now a conflict of interest. So, Michael, I need you to explain this. Yes, I I am now in Parliament. I'm a member of the Parliament. I'm very excited about it. It's a new chapter. I'm still going to carry on practicing labor law as a labor lawyer. I'm hoping in Parliament to get the portfolio of Labour, hopefully, if I'm treated carefully and properly, I'll get the Shadow Ministry of Labour. I'm very interested in the Labour law and I'm obviously wanting to put my all into that water to try and make the Labour law more understandable, more user-friendly. I want to make it easier for small businesses to survive and thrive. I'm also hoping to be able to use my experience of 35 years of labor law to ensure that when people do need to use bodies like the CCMA, which is the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation and Arbitration, that um, I can make the law user-friendly. And the same goes for the labor court. So many of these pieces of legislation are up for review. Uh, Some of it we're going to have amendments coming in. We've also got the new portfolio of small business, and I suspect that this portfolio is going to be having a look very carefully at the labor laws as to how they affect small businesses and how we can create more jobs, because that's the elephant in the room for South Africa over the next five years, is the creating of six million new jobs. You will all know that our president called for six million new jobs, Um, And it just doesn't come out of the air. It's not low-hanging fruit where you can go and pick six million jobs. What you need to do is you need to create more small businesses so that they employ more people. So um, this is very much up my alley, going into Parliament and having a look at these labor laws and hoping some way to try and influence the fact that we need the more jobs and we need more and more people in the workplace. Um, So I'm excited about this chapter in my life. Um, I will be obviously still consulting to my law firm at Bagram's Attorneys, and I will be still seeing clients, and there's certainly no conflict of interest in this. Um, Obviously, I'll get permission from Parliament to carry on doing that, Um, but I'm working jolly hard to ensure that the labor laws are user-friendly, both for the employees and for trade unions. I'm very much a big supporter of the trade unions, especially many of the independent smaller trade unions, and obviously for business itself. So it will be very good to be able to remain on the show and to hear what the people are saying, 
because this is the cutting edge. This is real problems of real people. And I'm hoping to use a lot of these problems to take it back into the Houses of Parliament. So the, the people that have been concerned about this being a conflict of interest have nothing to worry about at this yeah, stage? No, there, there's, no, there's no interest over here other than the improvement of our labor law. Um, and if anyone's got any questions and, or comments as to how we can improve the labor laws, uh, we can make it a point of getting some calls on this program um, so that people then will get a direct voice into the corridors of power in Parliament. I'm hoping to be able to take some of these questions and work out some of the answers and take it back into our government and see what can be done. Um, I think this is a great opportunity for the listeners to be able to get a voice right into the House. Well, that sounds really great. Well, we look forward to that in the future, Michael. Uh, we'll hold you to that. So if you have some questions that you think Michael should uh, be aware of, some points of interest that you think maybe he should be taking to Parliament, drop us a line on law at safm.co.za or wait for Michael to be on air next time and give us a call. Right, let's get started with some of these emails. The first one is from Matomi. He says, my question is, when I leave my job, is my monthly pay the only money I get at the end? Because I hear people talking about service money when you leave the job and they only deduct UIF. Because okay. my boss said when, when I leave, he'll just see how much he gives me, basically. Okay, yes. So there's a bit, a little bit, Matomi, a little bit of a confusing question, but I, I certainly understand it. First of all, yes, they deduct every month the unemployment insurance fund monies and if you leave then you're entitled to claim from the uif the unemployment insurance fund remember if you resign you can't claim so people out there often say i haven't been able to get my money it's been turned down i paid in for years into the uif my boss deducted it for many many years and now i can't claim was that a waste of time and money if you resign from your job voluntarily, then you cannot claim the UIF. So that's the first answer to him. If he leaves for any other reason, he can claim. Obviously, if you resign and you claim that you were forced to resign, that's a constructive dismissal, and you get the CCMA, the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation, Arbitration, or the Labor Court, or a bargaining council to say that that constructive resignation was in fact a dismissal, then you can go and claim your UIF. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, if you leave because of a downsizing, we call it in South Africa dismissal for operational requirement. Most of us know the term retrenchment. If you leave because of that, then you're entitled to get your uh, severance payment, which is normally calculated, and the minimum normally calculated on the basis of one week's pay, in other words, how much money you would earn in a week, multiplied by the time of completed years that you've been in that job. So the, the calculation is simple. If you've been there for seven and a half years and you get retrenched, i.e. dismissed for operational requirements, then you're entitled to seven weeks pay because the seven and a half years, it's only the completed, you don't count the half. And if it's completed, then you're entitled to the seven weeks. Now, there's some agreements with trade unions where companies have agreed on two weeks' pay per completed year of service. Um, there's some industries where there's an accepted practice for more than the one week. But what Matumi is asking about is is just the UIF he gets. No, he's talking about service yeah, money. And there's no such thing as service money other than the severance payment if he gets retrenched. 
the service money does not exist in our law. It doesn't, it doesn't feature anywhere in the Basic Conditions of Employment Act or the Labor Relations Act. So if he leaves, the only monies he can claim, obviously if there's any leave pay outstanding to him, then he'll get paid. Obviously if there's any monthly pay outstanding to him, he'll get paid. But he will only get the severance payment, which often people could call it service money, if they get retrenched. So no other reason? No. Okay. Now, the next one, I must actually find it because there was another one that was very similar to this one. This is from Raphael. It says, I saw a post advertised in the newspaper for an accountant. It had the letters EE Post. When I phoned, they said they wanted a white female, not a white male. Is that normal? Now, there's a second one that asks pretty much the same sort of question. Um, maybe just start replying to that one and I'll find it. But there was also another one to do with employment equity type of... Okay, well, okay we... here's one. It says, there was a job opening. This is from Thomas. It says, there was a job opening which required two candidates. I applied for a job and the ad said a BEE candidate would be given preference and a white female was required for the other post. My question is simply, are such requirements lawful? Don't they discriminate against white males? Okay, yes, th these are interesting questions and we've been through many of these. I know my practice uh, at Bagram's Attorneys, we get these questions every day. Uh, we do challenge some of them and we've been to court on some of them. Um, we need to go a bit backwards. In South Africa today, we have employment equity legislation. That legislation is called positive discrimination. Positive discrimination, it is understood, is discrimination against certain people, but for good reason. We have a very fractitious past here in South Africa where black people, disabled people, women were discriminated against. And I think we all accept that. We all accept that that's what happened very strongly at the workplace where women, disabled and people of color were discriminated against at the workplace. And so what our employment equity legislation has done is it's put into force legislation to, to try and level the playing fields, try and bring people who were discriminated against in the past into the workplace and to give them equal opportunities once they're in the workplace. And that's created a certain amount of disquiet with those who don't benefit from this employment equity legislation. Now, who in reality doesn't benefit? It's the pale male. They don't normally benefit from this legislation and it's pretty sad. Here I am, pale, male, and stale, and I have to lament the fact that being pale, male, and stale, i.e. old, um, I'm not going to benefit from the employment equity legislation. And, of course, the people that do normally complain are those who are white males. Um, and I understand that, and I think it's, it's not fair, but it becomes fair discrimination for a period. I, for one, would like to see... A, a, a clause in clause. that legislation mm. with the sunset. In other words, we'll do this for the next 10 years and why carry on discriminating against the pale male child that was born in 2014, um, long after, 20 years after apartheid was dismantled. Um, and that wouldn't be fair to that child. But you must understand, because of the demographics of our population and the demographics of our workforce, we haven't quite got there yet. We're still not reflecting enough females, for instance, 
in the higher echelons of employment and in many of the posts. Uh, they are trying to populate those posts with females. And um, a female, it makes no difference whether it's white, black, Indian, colored. It's a female. And you would want to try and put more women into those posts. And I think we all understand that. And probably most of us respect that. Obviously, there's all sorts of other problems. And you would have heard a lot of the debates in the past about whether you are formally disadvantaged. In other words, black and black encompasses Indian, colored, uh, and black people. Um, and, of course, many of the posts are starting to discriminate against colored people. Well, that's all changing Indian. now with the new regulations well, uh, coming uh, in. No, the new regulations still say you can discriminate against Indian and colored people. That's what people. I'm, I'm saying. And I, I don't think that's fair, and no. I think it, it's, it should be challenged. But in this particular question by Rafael, uh, Rafael said that they wanted a white female and not a white male, and that is normal. You need to, of course, have a look at the advert carefully. But if it is an EE post, what they're really saying, it's it's newspeak for saying we don't want the white male, mm. if at all we if at all possible, um, and it's newspeak for saying we would rather have the female than the male. So I understand that, and it is normal. Um, unfortunately, the normal in South Africa today could be interpreted as being discriminatory. We know that it is um, employment equity. We know that the legislation in certain circles can be seen as heavily discriminatory. It, it's social engineering. That's all it is. We are engineering the socialism in the, in the country. And I, I think social engineering of this nature isn't good, but I think it's called for in circumstances where we stay, we stand around right now. Obviously, um, it's very disappointing for Rafael, and I understand and, that. And Thomas's and, one was that well, there were two jobs. They said the applied for the job, and the ad said a BEE candidate would be given preference, and a white female was required for the other post. So it's basically what you've been it's saying. Exactly the same mm. thing. It's BEE, and he says, "Is it lawful?" And yes, it is. It is lawful, and you can discriminate against white males. And Thomas, I'm sorry to tell you this. Of course, what one would do in those circumstances and what I do when clients come to see me in my office, I call upon the company to let me have a look at the employment equity plan. And then I have a look at how many people they do have in terms of that plan and what the aims are of the plan. Because sometimes you find that they're cheating a little uh, and it's not right. They have to stick to their own plans. But yes, it is lawful. And I'm sorry to tell Rafael and Thomas at the end of the day, Employment equity is here to stay, and for the near future, it's going to be here, and we must structure ourselves in light of that. Right. Next one is from Sam, and he says, so we need your help as a company. My boss stopped sending money to the bargaining council last year in August, and he's never sent any money to SARS since 2011, but he's deducting that money from every employee. A pay slip shows that he is doing that. Well, Sam, what you've got over here is you've got a boss that looks like he's a cheat. Uh, it also looks like he's doing something that's absolutely criminal. Um, one should, in fact, report to SARS immediately because that is stealing money from you and putting it in his own pocket, and he should have been paying SARS, and SARS will follow up. If one thing I can tell you, uh, we often complain about government departments. We often say that government departments aren't uh, fast. They're not quick on the uptake. They're not interested in compliance, but I can promise you if SARS hears this, 
what you've just said, <laughs> they will have an inspector around there within Yesterday. minutes. You mm. know, within minutes. And I have enormous respect for SARS. Um, they've been very good in what they've been doing over the past 20 years. It's a superb department. I can only applaud them, not because I have to pay, but I think because I have to pay, everyone else must pay. But this is worse. They've been deducting your money already. And the boss is actually keeping it. He's not the receiver of revenue. He can't keep it by any stretch of the imagination. So go to SARS. They have a, um, a, a squealing line where you can phone in. I don't know the number offhand. And maybe Corin can have a look if at the helpline. be on the front page of the SARS website. It probably would be. And we can put it on our website as well. So if anyone hears anything of this nature, and Sam... I think you'll be doing the country a great service if you do phone SARS. The next thing is refusing to send money to the bargaining council where they still deduct it again. That's fraud. Absolute fraud because it's not your boss's money. It's your money that he's deducting and he's acting as a post office, but he's actually not sending it off. So he's keeping it and using it. Again, fraud, wrong. And again, if you phone the bargaining council, speak to that bargaining council and if you let us know at a later program what bargaining council it is, we can report it ourselves uh, from Bagram's attorneys. I do this often because I hate it when people take money off someone's salary and then don't hand it over to the bargaining council. And it affects you, Sam. I'll tell you how it affects you in a big way because the bargaining council puts that money against your pension money. And so you're going to have a gap in your pension money, so you'll be working thinking that you're paying your pension in every month and collecting at least a little bit of interest and some benefit from it, and you're not getting it. A real problem. So you've got two issues that you've raised, which certainly raise my hackles and makes my hair very stand, very much stand on end with the last bit I've got. So, yes, Sam, please do your civic duty. Get hold of the inspector at the bargaining council and an inspector at SARS. Right, Colton says he would like to know what the hourly rate is for an electroplater with qualified SAMFA plating course and seven years work experience. Would you have any idea? I, I, I don't have an idea in terms of when I can tell Colton where to find out. First of all, find out, and you can see from his payslip, is he registered with the bargaining council? I think he will be. And it's probably through CIFSA, um, and it's probably through the metal industry. Metal Engineering Industry Bargaining Council, M-E-I-B-C. And if he looks at his payslip, it'll tell you where he's registered. Once you've got the registration, look up the phone number for the M-E-I-B-C, because I'm sure that's where you are, in fact, registered. Uh, they are a countrywide bargaining council. Phone them, speak to an inspector, and they will tell you what electroplater in your area. This also depends on what area you are. It will tell you what, in fact, with seven years' work experience, what your rate is, the minimum rate. They won't tell you the maximum, but they'll tell you the minimum. So it's a valid question in that you need to know what your hourly rate is because, unfortunately, what we're experiencing in South Africa is that many businesses are not paying the minimum rate. Right, so Colton, you need to contact the Bargaining Council and tell them where you are and they'll be able to help you with that rate that you're looking for. Then we've got an email from Tony who says, wants to know which university in South Africa is best for law. Oh, wow. If to I study law. If I answer that question be, truthfully, I'll probably be, be shocked. No. <laughs> but, but it is an interesting question because obviously many uh, students want to know, you know, where will I mm. be able to get the best education? Um, and I can tell you right now, um, 
it depends on what city you're in, obviously, um, and then you would look at the universities around. I, I, as a lawyer and a senior partner in my firm, I recruit people often on the basis of what university they went to, and in Cape Town I support the University of the Western Cape because I like labor lawyers, and I think their labor law department is good. You must also, if you're going to study law, and it's a difficult one because before you study law, you're not really sure what area of law you're interested in. But I know that the University of the Western Cape, here in Cape Town, produce very good labor lawyers. Normally, the people come out of there, they are energetic, hungry, they want to go for the fight. I like the University of the Western Cape, but that's discrimination from my point of view. I studied at Rhodes University, um, and in those days it had a fantastic law department. I don't know what it's like now. I haven't been back, back there for many years. But we had a, a set-up courtroom at Rhodes University, and you should ask the universities what it is, what facilities they offer. But I know we had a fantastic facility, which was a set-up courtroom, and we did moots every month. A moot is where you have a mock trial. And we used to get real judges from town who used to come and listen to the moots. And we'd get two people, they'd give you a set of facts, and they would argue in front of a real judge. It was nerve-wracking in the beginning, but it was great for advocacy. You learn very quickly. But obviously the, the traditional universities, UCT and WITS, are fantastic law schools. Both of them produce great commercial lawyers. So it depends very much which area you come from and what type of law you would like to try and, and get into. you think you'd like to do in the end. Yeah, correct. Right, then another education one from Roxanne says, listens to the law report every Monday, doesn't have a legal question per se, but wants to ask if you had any contacts for guidance counsellors or people who could advise on the LLB and how to go about it. And a bit of a background, she says, I've been accepted into second semester at the University of South Africa to study LLB and wanted to know what would be the best way to go about completing first and second semester in rapid succession as I have changed degrees and would like to complete first year this year. And she says, I have emailed UNISA and the law faculty as well for help. Well, obviously the last bit is what really counts because... Um, I, I remember also when I was at university, I changed over from studying political science to going into law. Uh, before I, I still recommend people actually do the BA first, the Bachelor of Arts, before they go straight into an LLB. Um, and I know there's a lot of debate going on about this. And I think even WITS has changed now where you can't just go and do a straight LLB anymore. I suspect all the universities will go that way. But if you want a real rounded education, I know it costs more and it takes longer to get it. I always tell people, do the undergraduate course first. Take some law subjects in your undergraduate course so it makes the LLB um, easier. Uh, but I know the law societies have all been complaining about the young lawyers coming into the profession don't have a background. They don't have the grasp and the understanding of the concepts of legal argument. Uh, and I, I know from young lawyers that come into my firm, uh, we have to sit down with them and we have to start training uh, in those articles to say, look, this is the concept. Think it through. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. How are you going to get to the solution? Um, and I find that those that have studied an undergraduate course first 
are able to grasp the law better, despite the fact that people do come out with LLB degrees, and at the end of the day, you have to still train them. So I think UNISA is the best to advise you because that's where you're studying. They all have their own internal rules and regulations. You'll see that every university has a rule book. Um, you can get those rule books online if you're a student there. Uh, my suggestion is you read it, have a look at it, get a basic, and then go in and speak to them because everyone gets a student advisor. Yeah, because she's well. asking about a guidance counselor. But what she says is that because she's done this change now from one, yeah. I don't know what she was doing before, she says she wants to go about completing first and second semester in rapid succession. Now, is that a good thing to rush well, something like not, this? Well, not really, but at least the university, you will have, you will get a student advisor who will tell you whether it can be done or not. If it's not a good thing, then they won't allow it in terms of their rules. So I don't, I don't, I don't think she's following the right way by asking us. The right way is what she has done by emailing UNISA, but if she gets a chance and she's within striking distance of UNISA, maybe even go in, it would be much better. Okay. Right, our next email, would, the sender would like to remain anonymous, but says, I've joined Pop Crew Labor Union during the time when I was with the Department of Correctional Services in 2005. I then decided in 2009 to terminate my membership with Pop Crew for another union, PSA. Now, my problem is that Pop Crew refuses to effect my instruction of termination of membership since 2009, and I've been paying for double union affiliation fees since then. I followed all the prescribed bargaining council resolutions on how to officially terminate a union membership. I just want this pop crew to stop their unlawful debit on my personal account immediately and please help me on how to claim maximum damages as they've been taking my money unlawfully. Example, and then in brackets he says restitution claim and contractual damages in terms of negative or positive interest. I may not be able to tune in because I work night shift and not able to carry a cell phone. So hopefully if he doesn't get to hear this, we can send this to him. But what does he do in this situation? Well, he's obviously told them and he is entitled to claim his money back from Pop Crew. And the easiest way to do that... But he seems to be battling to, for years, yeah, five I years now. I don't now. understand it because um, he's talking about the personal number and I understand what the personal number is, but... At correctional services, they do have a pay office, and you should get hold of the pay office. They can stop it. What the pay office can stop it. It doesn't have to be the union that stops it. Um, and all you have to do is advise your pay office. He's obviously been trying to p pursue pop crew. Well, he said um, I followed all the prescribed bargaining council resolutions on how to officially terminate a union membership, but it doesn't seem to be working. Yeah, because he's trying the union, and he should be trying his own pay office. Oh right. And okay. I think at that point they'll probably stop it completely. It's a debit order. It's not. It's not an official. Um, uh, governmental order and they can stop that immediately in terms of claiming back uh, that's a little bit more difficult because he's probably going to have to send a letter of demand and then probably ask an attorney to follow up and sue them for the money because this looks like it's um what's it four it's five, five years, years yeah worth of money that they've claimed it might not be worth issuing a summons well, i'm saying would this fall into that three-year period as well yeah, Is no, it too no, that's fine. he can prove that and he's, he's been obviously ongoing. been trying and he's been Telling them all the time, so the three-year period keeps getting interrupted anyway. He's got the time. My my strong issue is um, it's expensive to litigate, but that's only he's going to have to do civil litigation. But do you think that the pay office might be able to help him initially? They should. He's, his own pay office must, must do it. So the union thing, he should just forget about that. I mean, well, going to the bargaining council but, thing, mean, but goes directly to the pay office correct, first of all. You, you must understand that um, Pop Crew is a massive union. They've got thousands of people. 
People are joining and leaving and all day long. It's also in their interest not to cancel. Um, so unfortunately, you know, it's very difficult to find someone who you can actually pick on and say, you are now causing trouble for me. He's also got a shop steward there, and I would tackle the shop stewards and also send a memo to everyone or through the email, intramail, he can send, because he's there, he's on webmail. Um, send to all the people involved with the union to say that they've been unlawfully debiting my personal and he, his personal is his own account so he must do that immediately it sounds like he's wasted five years on, on this well, it, doesn't, it doesn't sound like he's been sitting around doing nothing though no, I mean, no. he's been battling I don't know why his employer hasn't been helping I mean they, they government it's the correctional services so I don't know why they were doing this to him. Or maybe if he goes there now, they'll be able to help. And his new union. He's joined the yes. PSA. Yeah, why the new union hasn't stepped in and done something for him, I don't know. Um, because that's his representative. That's what unions do. They fight their members' fights. Not just unfair dismissals, but anything. And he's got a new union. <laughs> it doesn't seem all that effective, the new union, in that since 2009, unless he forgot to ask his new union to do something about it. Okay, so <laughs> my, our anonymous uh, emailer here, you have got two options, either your office account, your, your work accounting office or your new union. Both of them should be able to help both. you. Yeah. Absolutely. As we always say on the show, don't just sort of send people stuff. Follow, Follow it up, it up. Yeah. because otherwise it gets lost in the shuffle, you know, and then uh, five years later you're still looking for the piece of paper. Right, rather a long email now from uh, Motla Lentor who says, please assist, how do I prove that fraud allegations that were leveled against me at work were malicious and false? I was suspended at work on fraud allegations and later the hearing was held. I won the case. In fact, the presiding officer, after looking at the evidence presented by the inverted commas prosecutor and myself, found that there was no case it's not that they failed to prove fraud allegation, but there was no case. In short about the case, I told senior management not to do the payments on my behalf for my cancelled medical aid. And then I then acted on that matter to make sure that the payment is not made. But they continued to make payment to a cancelled medical aid and later they accused me of fraud, claiming I unduly benefited on the payment they made. Isn't it malicious and false to accuse someone of something he advised you not to do while you deliberately ignored his advice or instruction? According to the policy at work, if an employee raises fraud allegations against a fellow employee and later those are found to be malicious and false, disciplinary action should be taken against the person who raised those allegations. How do I prove that these were malicious and false? There is a reluctance by management to take action against this person. According to them, they're saying it's difficult to prove that it was malicious and that the allegations were false. Isn't it proof enough that I told them not to process payment, but they decided otherwise to continue making that payment? According to me, this was not about correcting the system where the employee has done wrong, but malicious attempt to vilify my name because as a junior employee, I advised them and they did not listen. And when they noticed their wrongdoing, they turned it against me. I want to take this further because I was purposefully defamed and management is now afraid and reluctant to take action against this person who made this false allegation against me. Is there anything I can do if management is not taking measures to clean my name? Do I have a recourse in this case? It sounds horrendous and it also sounds, if this is what happened, the company, whoever this is, mm. I mean, you kind of wonder, like, yeah, what are they on? thinking here? This doesn't sound right. And then it was found that there's no proof. Yeah, which, uh, which is to the company's benefit, I suppose, at the end of the day, that they actually now can say, well, we actually held this, we investigated, and we found him not guilty, so we've cleared his name. That's, that's what will be their answer to it. But, yes, there are certain things that can be done. 
Um, obviously, when you make an allegation of this nature, you've got to you bear the onus to prove that someone knew and that this person who reported me was malicious and false. And so the easiest way to do it is to take out the paperwork or his emails to this person where he requested um, and show that he was it was brought to his attention. Now, you'll probably be able to get a transcript of that disciplinary hearing, which will then constitute the essence of his claim against this individual. And the way you claim against an individual, firstly, is to raise a grievance in terms of the grievance procedure. And as part of that grievance, you will then attach the transcript of the disciplinary inquiry where the chairperson said that there was no case at all. Never mind any proof, but there was no case at all. You would also then attach any proof that you have that you actually informed this individual not to deduct the money. With those attachments to your grievance, the company then is obliged to have the first hearing of that grievance. Obviously, if you're not satisfied, you would then escalate it upwards, and you can escalate it all the way up to the chief executive officer. If you don't get anywhere on that, you can actually, because it's a company that ought to be protecting you, that's where you employed you, an employee. And if you don't get any joy out of the grievance procedure, you can then go to either the CCMA, that's the Commission for Conciliation, Mediation, Arbitration, or to a bargaining council if the company belongs to them, and raise an unfair labor practice. And on that basis, say that this has happened to you. Obviously, he wants to take it one step further, and he's saying that it's defamatory, and uh, they purposely defamed him. Um, that's a different story. Uh, defamation can be either criminal, so he can go to the police, if he can prove that, he, that people deliberately made stories up against him just to destroy his good name. It's quite a radical move to go to the police and lay charges against the directors of the company. Or the senior now, there seems to be another employee involved. Yeah. yeah, although he says, I was purposely defamed and management is now afraid and reluctant to take action against this, this person. person who made the false but allegations. But he can yeah. go to the police. That's, that's the one step. I'm not that keen on that step, but he can do that. Or he can get an attorney to issue a summons for defamation. In other words, he's got to show that his good name has been vilified in in the eyes of management or whatever, he's going to have difficulty with that because, in fact, management at first thought he might have done something wrong, but then they obviously followed the recommendations of the disciplinary chairperson who said he's not guilty. So to show that he's actually got damages and that management now have a, a lesser feeling about him and lesser esteem to his name... It's going to be very difficult to prove that. There was an interesting case in England in the early 1900s where a fellow did go to court for defamation of character, ran an enormous trial, and the judge said, yes, he was defamed, and he'll give him one penny damages because he couldn't prove that there were any damages to his good name. Um, a lot of us get angry when someone, for instance, walks past me and shouts, idiot, or whatever. Um, I get angry about it, but no one's going to believe him. And or there was no one listening or something of that nature or there was no one around. I can't really prove damages for that. And that's why they've also created the criminal side of it where the government wants to protect people from being defamed. So in short, he must raise the grievance. He must f pursue this fellow because the fellow is doing horrible things to him and he wants to stop that in the future. I'm not so sure about pursuing 
the defamation action. You know, the, the two, two points that I wanted to bring up in this regard, though, is that, what, first of all, what could he actually claim? Oh, is it a financial claim? What would he... It has to be financial, yeah. and you've got to prove that there's losses, mm. and that's almost impossible. Mm. He's got to prove that he either lost his work, which he didn't do, or that he didn't get an increase... Uh, because they're still worried or that there might be or, or something whatever. like that. Yes. So it's got to then then translate that into finance, and it's not so easy. The other thing about this, though, is that you know I, I don't know if it's happened in this case, but you find sometimes when this sort of thing happens that there's people will think, gosh, well, you know, there's not normally smoke without you know that's that's a fire. what he's, that's what he's you know, worried there's, about. There's always something. Maybe maybe there's more to this than we are seeing, yeah. and there's always possibly in the back of everybody's mind that maybe there was something, but they could. Just couldn't prove it, you know, and then you have to live with that, and I'm sure that that's what he's worrying about. Oh, of course he is. And let me give you a case study on this, and I ran a case on this. Uh, a gentleman came to see me a few years back at my firm of attorneys, and he had been accused of sexual harassment at the workplace. Um, a disciplinary, two women had come forward at a disciplinary hearing. One said that he had um, cornered her in the stationary room where they kept all the stationery and had closed the door and had pressed himself against her and had tried to rape her. She said that she was terrified. Um, it was a nasty exercise that happened to her and she laid, lodged a complaint. She brought in a colleague of hers who had said that she had heard what was going on. She heard the other one screaming in the, in the room she had heard the screaming, thought, what the hell's going on, had opened the door and had seen the manager pressing himself, his body, against her body. And she was the witness to this. A disciplinary hearing was held, um, and he was found guilty at the disciplinary hearing. And all the time he said, but I never, ever did that. He said, I didn't see her in the, I wasn't in the room with her at the time, and this is all a story. Um, a terrible story, and uh, it's, it's not true. He came to see me, and he said, look, I've now been dismissed, and I'm also going through a divorce because of this, where my wife has said that if I'm going to be a sex pest, uh, she doesn't want me around, and it was his life fell apart. That, that's what happened. And I listened to him, and I asked him, and he told me, that these two women were working for him in his department. He'd never made a pass at either one of them. And that he was, in fact, performance managing both of them. As the manager, uh, the one was a pretty bad attendance record, was always late at work. She had problems at home. And he was performance managing her to try and possibly push her out and have a disciplinary hearing. And the other one was, in fact, a friend of hers, but had also been performance managed for other issues. Um, she wasn't doing her job properly. And he had given her three warnings already, and it looked like she was now very close to a disciplinary hearing where she might actually be dismissed. And he maintained that these two women ganged up against him. And I said to him, well, let me just tell you there's no smoke without fire. Are you sure that you're telling me as your attorney you can level with me Tell me the truth. Did you press up against her? Were you enamored with her? Was there some issue? Did you have maybe an affair with her? Let me know. Level with me. And he said, no, not at all. We got to the CCMA. And at the CCMA, 
obviously I separate, the CCMA separates the witnesses and the first lady got into the witness box and I grilled her for over two days asking a question. There were inconsistency in what she was trying to say, a lot of inconsistency, and I grilled her for two days so that I had the minute detail of what she's saying. Time, place, what she was wearing, what he was wearing, um, what she had screamed, all these details I got out of her and she answered them. When I started afterwards cross-examining the witness, the story was completely different. They hadn't coordinated their stories properly. It went down well in the disciplinary hearing because it was just, you know, he, he screamed, he, she screamed, da, 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 open and shut, and obviously he's a sex pest and fire him. It came absolutely loud and clear that they had been talking to each other and she was going to stand in as a witness. At that point, she then said, listen, I can't bear this anymore. I've got nothing out of this. Um, it's not nothing. It wasn't my idea. It was so and so's idea. She said, "Let's do this to get him fired, so that we can protect our jobs." Right. Now this was three months after he'd left the job, and he'd been through all this trauma. The CCMA, bless them, decided to call in the first witness back again to say, "Now this is what the second witness has said." She then started shouting and screaming, saying, "How dare she say that?" We had both agreed to oh, do it. Oh, well, how about putting your yeah, own foot in your mouth? We okay. had both agreed to do this. It was not my idea. It was both of our idea. And so how can she say it? The bottom line is, yes, there's no smoke without fire, but here you have this poor fellow. What happened who's to him been in the fired. He, yeah, he was given a reinstatement. I he didn't want to go back. Um, he didn't want to go back at that point. There'd been too much water under the bridge. But unfortunately, we see many of these cases. He got decent money out of it. He got apologies. I don't know if his wife didn't then well, stick I, I around. I didn't get involved in that. I, I would, hope have, she I would did. have found out because that's yeah. just so tragic. Yeah, no, it is. But what I'm saying to you is um, I can understand this question when you have things, fraud allegations leveled at you. It's horrific. You've got to live with this. And even if you eventually are proved that it, there's nothing to it, everyone's still, there's a Skinner mill mm. out there. You know, so Africans are very good at this. We all talk about each other. Uh, if there's any malicious um, gossip to be heard, all everyone's ears suddenly open up. I just want to ask you one thing, though. You mm. said there that you had grilled her for two days. I thought mm. you weren't allowed to have attorneys at the CCMA. Uh, you can because he, in, in, at, at that point, had actually leveled a, um, a claim against him by saying it was discriminatory. Um, and then they agreed to the jurisdiction of the CCMA. It could have gone to the Labour Court. And, yes, um, they, they allowed attorneys in then. So it's not for every, and every the, case and, that they allow attorneys and in. The, and the company also brought their own attorneys. So often, not every case, um, but in, in this case it was allowed in. And also it was probably going to lead to civil litigation afterwards and possibly criminal litigation. And the CCMA said, no, with that, with that in mind... They're going to allow lawyers in. And the company wanted their own lawyers anyway, so they were in agreement. I hope the others were locked up for perjury. I don't know what actually happened to them. Michael, but you must I, find out all these details. Yeah. Don't leave us hanging with half a story now. Yeah, but I, I had I to get to, on and do some work. Well, I need to know if the wife stuck around. I also <laughs> need to know whether the two supposed witnesses were sort of tried for perjury or what it was. Well, we can watch I have the, half, a, half a story missing now. <laughs> We can watch the TV channel and see who shot who behind the, oh, right. the, okay. the, 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 the door. bathroom door. Yeah, 
Right, we have an email here from Catalano who says, I was employed as a security officer after reporting a crime. A hit was ordered on my life. A police officer refused to open a case for me. I left the job and went on in, into hiding, basically. I lodged a complaint with the provisional police commissioner. The police officer was warned, but nothing was done to protect me. I cannot work. Can I claim damages from the minister? I don't, I don't think he can, and I'm not really sure at the end of the day why he left the job. Well, he, he says he, he reported a crime, and yeah. then a, after that a hit was ordered on his life. Yeah, but he could have got the company, if he didn't leave the job, he probably could have got the security company to help him out and to try and somehow protect him. But to leave it and sort of... He went into hiding. went into hiding. That's not the best thing to do. So um, I, I'm not really sure, but it basically this is to claim damages against the minister. I don't think he's going to get it. Well, because the police wouldn't open the case. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. And there probably is a reason as to why they wouldn't, and he should actually then... There is a, also a complaints line within the police, and you can actually activate that all the way up to the police commissioner. Right, okay. Now there's um, an email here from Arafat Matovu who says, I love this, I bumped into your Monday's program on SAFM. I like that, he bumped into it, wasn't looking for us, he just bumped into <laughs> us. It was, it was and still is a very important one because you address issues that are happening on almost a time-to-time -time basis. I would like to use this opportunity to thank you for this great job you are doing. Well, thank you very much for those very kind words. We certainly do appreciate that. He says, I've got one or two issues which I would like to ask you to assist me with or at least advise me. First one, there is someone I know who suffered a serious injury at his previous work. He ended up in the hospital, but the employer did not assist him. He was operated on and later lost his job because he could not report at work during the treatment period. So let's see, that's the first question. Okay, well, Arafat, let me, let me tell you that we have got um, uh, insurance. Everyone at, who is at work actually has insurance. Um, I'm not sure what your friend, where he was working, what he did. But at the end of the day, he's got the insurance through the government, which comes through your salary, they deduct monies, and you are entitled at the end of the day to get payment for that. If you were dismissed, you can be boarded. Um, you're probably, if he was on a pension fund, he can have a proper boarding. Um, hopefully, he has done all that, and this is not too old um, that he can't now claim. But I think that's the right way of going through this. It's... Uh, um, the, the commissioner would actually, through the Department of Labor, would be interested in making sure that it was reported and that he can get his monies. Also, the employer has to pay the first three months of the salary. But they get off, that back. From, and they get it yeah. back from the commissioner. But there, there is obviously um, a claim that can be put in by him, and especially if he's now lost his job because he can't report. But I've the, but found this odd. He lost his job because he could not report at work during the treatment period. I mean, it if you've been treated... Sense. No one expects you surely to go to work. Well, or is that depends just me? what. Depends what. I mean, if you've been treated for a sore finger. Well, then that's different. Then, you know, but so, he had an operation. It, it looks yeah. like a serious injury and mm. he had an operation. So I think he does need to take it up with the commissioner. Right. His second question is, there's someone who used to work for one employer. The employer used to, another one, used to deduct a certain amount of money from his 
salary every month for SARS and labor benefits purposes. At the end, he found out that the employer did not save any money as he assured. Unfortunately, both people did not know where to go or what to do. They're no longer working for the employers in question. It's obviously like one of those ones we had mm. earlier where the employer is taking out the, the tax money and the labor benefits, uh, which UIF, I imagine is UIF, yeah. and not... This seems to be sort of a recurrent theme here tonight. Yeah, well, you see, as the businesses go through a tough time and they deduct, for instance, monies, and I'm not suggesting that anyone should do this, but you can see how, how um, enticing it could be for an employer. If his work um, force have, say... 50,000 rand a month that he deducts off their salary for PAYE and he can't afford to pay his telephone because he's having a bad month, he then tries to roll that money over and pay for his telephone and some petrol and he's thinking that he's going to have a better month next month and it doesn't become a better month. And I've been finding a lot of that. And as the economy gets more and more uh, tight, it, it gets tougher out there, especially with small businesses. Unfortunately, I am seeing this uh, quite a bit. And that's why earlier on in the program I said you must report it quickly because these things roll over and get worse, much worse where the employer at that point then can never get out of it. He's dug a hole for himself so deep um, that it becomes almost like a gambling debt. Um, it, it's a sickness because you've, you're using someone else's money to run your business. But you're saying report this quickly. How do people quickly. find out? The only way you're going to find out is at the end of the tax year, surely, when you well, suddenly yes, discover you not, haven't paid tax or you yeah, try and claim from UIF and there isn't any. Yeah, Where can you go but, it, during uh, the course of the year to check that these things are actually being go, paid in? You can, you can phone SARS straight away and give them your number. Uh, but I tell you what does happen, and this is how people come to my office with this, someone who does leave, anyone mm. in the company, there are 50 people in the company, one leaves, he goes to try and claim his UIF. Or he goes to the bargaining council, and the bargaining council said, now your employer's behind. That's the first ringing bell. He then tells everyone else at the company, this is what happened. Then everyone should see a red light and say, whoa, hold on, this is flashing. He's not paying anyone's money. And at that point, normally people come forward. I would suggest that this is a big benefit for unions, why you need unions around because they would jump in very quickly. They wouldn't tolerate that. No union worth its salt would tolerate someone doing this, any union. Um, and I found unions are very useful in this set of circumstances. You know, we all scream and shout about trade unions and we all complain that they take people out on strike and whatever, but this is bread and butter stuff. And unions are very quick to jump on this and make sure it's right. And so we need to take our hat off and, and salute them for this. Uh, the other thing is, um, and it's very easy, to phone the Department of Labor and ask an inspector and say, at the end of the day, is my UIF up to date? And they can pick it up on the computer screen immediately. All you do is you give your number, your employment number. Right, and uh, for the employers out there, this you know, if you get caught... Um, it's fraud. It, you could be jailed jail, for this, yeah. Jail time. So Correct. rather just don't do this. It's theft. Fraud, fraud and theft. Well, besides it being fraud and theft, you're actually doing people out. I mean, and the employees now. I mean, SARS is SARS really going to care that the employer didn't pay the money in, or are they going to yeah, care? No, 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 no. But at, at the bottom, of, at the end of the line, are they going to care that the employer didn't pay the money into SARS, or are they going to care that you didn't pay your tax? 
No, the the employer is the tax collector. So, but now they when look, when, it, when you come now to pay your tax and you haven't paid any, they're going to hit you with this whack of tax for you. No, to, they're, they're not. Employer. Okay. The no, employer, that's the employer is the tax collector. They make him responsible. Okay. So the employer is the tax collector. Employers need to understand that. And and I must just point out something else that is not part of this this answer to this question from Arafat, but the employer being the tax collector, it bec- it puts a lot of onus on employers. So often, employers say that I have engaged an independent contractor who is not an employee, or I've done a deal with my employees that I don't need to deduct tax from them, and they're going to invoice me, or something of that nature. The receiver of revenue can jump in and say, no, that person was an employee. They haven't paid any tax. They didn't have a tax directive. I know that you paid all the money, including all the tax, to the employee. You now have to pay. They don't pursue employees. Oh, right. Okay, that's, that's only, what I was trying to only, work out. They only pursue the employer. Well, as they always say, you know, if you have all these bills to pay, who do you pay first? I suggest you pay the tax man first. I think it's the safest Absolutely. bet. It's the safest nothing, bet. <laughs> nothing better than that. Best investment in the world. Absolutely. And you'll sleep at night a whole lot better too. Well, my thanks once again this evening to Labour Law Attorney Michael Bagram. Thank you very much indeed for joining us once again for the special edition of the Law Report this evening. Hope you've got through some of our emails. Thank you. Yes, that was very exciting. Obviously, we haven't done all of them, but at the end of the day, we want people to keep asking us questions. Absolutely, and especially now. We want now. people to raise all sorts of issues. It stretches my head, and I'm sure some of the answers help people out there who are interested in running their own affairs properly. Well, thanks to Michael. He's been my guest on tonight's edition of the Law Report program, and he'll be back with us again on Monday, the 7th of July, when we will once again be taking your calls. And remember, there's a list of available documents on the Facebook page, Law on SAFM, if you'd like any of them. You can post a message there on Facebook, but please remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. Or you could email me on law at safm.co.za, and I'll send you the list if you don't have access to Facebook. The Law Report is on the air on SAFM every Monday evening between 9 and 10 and I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening just after 9 with Health Matters so join me then. It's time now for some nighttime music. Sick of always missing your favourite SAFM shows? Well now you don't have to. We have a free podcast service that allows you to access them directly from your cell phone, PC or tablet whenever and wherever you're ready to listen. Go to safm.co.za and click on podcast. This takes you to the SAFM page on iono.fm. Follow at iono.fm on Twitter or like it on Facebook for regular updates. You never have to miss your favorite shows. SAFM podcasts powered by iono.fm. First, it was the first democratic elections in 1994. The President of the Republic of South Africa, Mr. Nelson Kholishasa Mandela. The time for the healing of the wounds has come. The 2010 FIFA World Cup. We are proud. We are proud of Africa. The 2010 FIFA World Cup will be organized in South Africa. Then, a South African winning an Oscar. And the Oscar goes to... Charlize Theron. I'm going to thank everybody in South Africa, my home country... Our democracy did not come cheap. SFM celebrates 20 years of inspiration. Let us all reflect on how our freedom was achieved. SFM, 
South Africa's news and information leader. For interviews and analysis that move markets, politicians and the nation, listen to SAFM Current Affairs. So Mpumi, with this new development, have you given the union a written response and what do you expect to happen going forward? We're very optimistic that we'll get to where we need to be. Our employees need to go back to work. They need to start earning money. We are meeting with AMCO and we hope that AMCO will actually reconsider and, and go back to the in-principle agreement. Amplitz Spokesperson Mbumi Sitomi. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader.